Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 6 as we continue our study in the Old Testament prophet. You'll find Daniel after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel in your Old Testament. Uh, Tonight we come to the end of the first half of the 12 chapters of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 6. Let me invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's holy inspired, infallible word. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. For they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, 
and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no harm, no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this marvelous uh, and true story of your kindness and mercy to Daniel in rescuing him from all his enemies. Thank you that you are the God who's not only God in heaven above, but God on the earth below. Now come and help us understand your word and do good to our souls by it for your glory, we pray. Amen. 
This passage is a comfort to believers, showing us that God is our refuge and strength and an ever-present help in time of trouble. It also reminds us of, uh, ahead of time of the promise the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, that God is working all things together for good for his people, for those who love him. And who are called according to his purpose. Even in their troubles and trials, God is working our good. That is a promise, uh, even a pillow upon which you can lay your, your weary head, your troubled head at night. God's sovereignty, not only in heaven above, but on the earth below, is, is the theme of this book. Uh, we saw already... Uh, that he rules the kingdoms of men. In chapter 1, we saw that God is sovereign over uh, sparing Daniel and his friends, protecting them. In in chapter 2, we saw God is sovereign over the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that's given to Daniel. Uh, We saw in chapter 3 that God is sovereign uh, in protecting the three young men from the burning, fiery furnaces. In chapter 4, we saw God's sovereignty as he humbles King Nebuchadnezzar and saves him in mercy. In chapter 5, we saw God's sovereignty in his destruction of King Belshazzar, the final king of the Babylonians. And now here in chapter 6, we see again God is sovereign over Darius the Mede and over Daniel's enemies and in sparing Daniel in the lion's den. So I want you to think about this chapter with me. Uh, There's a lot here, but let me highlight three things. Uh, The first thing in verses 1 through 9, we want to see something about Daniel's pilgrimage amidst the kingdoms of this world as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Second, in verses 10 through 14, we want to see something about Daniel's persistent prayer in the midst of pressure and persecution. And then in verses 15 all the way to the end, we see Daniel's preservation by the angel of the Lord and what came of it. So let me highlight those three things. In the first place, consider the first nine verses, which is the setup for the story in Daniel's problem. And what we see is Daniel here is living as a pilgrim amidst the kingdoms of the world. And there's a lot to be said about this. By now, we saw that he, last time, he's an old man as the regimes change, as the kingdom of The Babylonians gives way to the kingdom of the Medes and Persians as Belshazzar is destroyed and Darius comes to rule. Daniel is probably some 80 years old or about. We saw that nations rise and fall just as God prophesied in Daniel 2. This is being fulfilled as a new regime takes over. But God's kingdom remains and God's servant still stands even in his old age. In service to God. And we see by his example how believers, even today, ought to live among the kingdoms of this world, even as believers in Jesus are citizens of a different kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. I mean, consider how Daniel lived here. He was appointed by Darius to be one of three presidents over 120 satraps who are going to be over the administration and the execution of the civil government. This was an enormous kingdom, the largest in its day. It spread all the way to the Atlantic Ocean in the west, all the way to India 
in the east. Uh, it covered all of the Middle East as we know it. It rose north into Turkey. It was enormous. And so, of course, like any government had to do, it set up, you know, a local and particular governors uh, in order that um, it might be administered well. But like in most governments, there was the usual trouble of waste and abuse even as civil servants lined their pockets. That's why it says Daniel was going to be appointed one of the three presidents so that the king might not suffer any loss. Daniel was a man of integrity, and he was a man of loyalty. Darius could count on him. He was distinguished above all others, the Bible says, with an excellent spirit. He was wise and honest in his government. And so Darius trusted him so much that it says he had planned to make him like first above all in his kingdom. And so Daniel here is presented to us as an Old Testament example of Peter's instruction to Christians. When Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12, when Peter says to us, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven on the day he visits us. So Daniel's an example to us here, and uh, he is full of faithfulness to God, integrity in his work, loyalty loyalty to the king, but he wasn't without trouble on account of his goodness here. The other presidents and satraps, well, they wanted to bring him down, right? But they couldn't do it easily because no ground could be found upon which to accuse Daniel of impropriety, error, fault, mismanagement, right? The the text isn't saying here that Daniel is a sinless man when it says he was blameless. It's not like Daniel didn't have his own personal faults. He wasn't wasn't superhuman and he wasn't Jesus. He was was a regular believer in the Messiah like, like us. But he wasn't blameless here of any kind of mismanagement in, uh, or ripping off the king. He, wasn't, he, he couldn't be bought off. He, he wouldn't turn his back on, on you know, schemes uh, to get rich at the expense of the king, unlike so many others in his day. And notice the evil strategy that's brought about by his enemies to destroy Daniel. Notice uh, that the only way they can get at him is... In, is through his faithfulness to God, because there's no other way. So they hatched this plan to have Darius the king declare himself the only mediator between God and man for a period of 30 days. So if you want to petition your God, you do it through the mediation of Darius the king. And if Daniel were to go along with that, well, what, would that, what effect would that have had on him? Well, it would have demoralized him by compromising his faith. Those who compromise are demoralized. Lack of faithfulness in our walks with Jesus, as you well know, leads us to spiritual lethargy, spiritual doubt, spiritual confusion. Uh, We lose the battle and we become deflated and are tempted to give up 
And, of course, that's exactly what the enemy wants, and I just want to say a word about that. If that's you, if you've already fallen flat on your face, and you aren't like Daniel here, do not despair. Peter denied Jesus to his face again and again, and Jesus loved him and welcomed him back. There is restoration for all who blow it in the kingdom of Jesus. But in Daniel's case, they knew he wouldn't go along with uh, this uh, area of compromise, and so they sought to destroy him because of his commitment. And so to uh, compromise would have weakened him and he would have withered spiritually, but to not compromise means he's going to face the lion's den. And notice that their strategy involved the pressure of numbers, right? Verse 6, it says they came by agreement or uh, they came thronging, as some of your Bibles will note. Uh, one after another, in, in individuals and in groups, they bombarded the king with this brilliant idea they had and everybody wants to see it happen. They were relentless and they didn't quit until they got what they wanted. And notice how their strategy was evil and full of lies. Verse 7, they said to the king, all the civil servants agree about this. Well, that wasn't true at all. Where's Daniel? They didn't consult him. He didn't have an opportunity to tell the king, this is a really bad idea. They're just lying, and that is not the last time in history, as you well know. Lies are told to get legislation passed. That's true in tyranny, and it is true in democracy. That is true of Democrats, and that is true of Republicans. The text here is, in a way, telling all of us, don't put your hope in politics, folks. It's not saying don't vote. It's not saying be a responsible, or don't be a responsible citizen. But just don't naively trust in politics. Put your hope in God. He's the only true faithful one, everlastingly. So... Well, the king confronted with all this pressure and all these lies, he folds, he wilts under pressure. He signs the document that makes whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except to the king, they'll be cast into the den of lions. So Daniel is their target, their goal is his death, and they think they've got exactly what they want. Now let's just apply this in a couple of ways before we move on. First, never be surprised when the world hates you. Never be surprised when the world pushes Christians out of the way, when it wishes you would go away, when it wants to destroy you for believing in Jesus. Never be surprised by that. But actually take comfort. Jesus comforts us in John 15, 18 through 20, when he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So don't be surprised, but take comfort in the words of Jesus. But the second point of application is this. Never be surprised when your hardest trials come late. In life, he's an old man, yet still a target of the enemy of his soul. 
even in his old age. He doesn't just get to sit back and relax and play rounds of golf every day and sip pina coladas by the poolside while he lives off his IRA. Daniel didn't retire to a selfish, self-centered life, nor give up his heart for the people of God, but he bore them on his heart. That's why he prays, kneeling, even three times a day, on behalf of the well-being of God's people. He's still doing the work of the kingdom as an 80-year-old man, late in life, and he's still the object then of the enemy's hatred. So we might, if we were in Daniel's shoes, be tempted to think, Lord, haven't I faced enough already? Weren't the years of my youth hard enough already? Wasn't that great big trial I just went through the final trial of my life? We might be tempted to say that, but here we see. Sometimes our early trials are simply preparation for later trials. Let those who are elderly not imagine that God is through with purifying our faith through trials, nor think that the enemy is going to ignore you as you serve the Lord. So that's the first big thing, Daniel's pilgrimage amidst the kingdom of this world. The second is his persistent prayers under pressure. What made Daniel so faithful in his work, so strong in the Lord and courageous under persecution? Verses 10 through 14, the Bible tells you it was God on whom he learned to depend. And he expressed that dependence and cultivated that dependence by turning again and again to his father in prayer. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks as he had previously done because he knew he couldn't live without God. So he called upon God and he talked to God. And notice a few things about this, this prayer life of Daniel. In the first place, verse 14, he knows that the earthly king is no help. And he was no help. The king, verse 14, got himself trapped. Daniel's enemies went to the king and had him After getting to sign the decree, when they go back, they already know Daniel's broken the decree. They go back to the king and first they have him reiterate the decree. And they get him to state out loud again that we can't can't undo the decree. And then they tell him that it was Daniel who broke the decree. Now listen, it's not, I don't think, entirely true that the custom of the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. For after Daniel is rescued, I mean, they, they declared this as law. Don't get me wrong. They state this as a certainty. But after Daniel is rescued, like the next day, well within the 30 days, the king makes a decree that effectively undoes this decree that he made at first. He commands people to honor and revere and tremble before the God of Daniel. (laughs) And he doesn't say you may begin to do so when the 30 days are up. He just issues the decree that effectively negates the first decree. But initially he doesn't do that. Why? Well, maybe he feels trapped by his words, having just reiterated to the faces of Daniel's enemies that he couldn't do such a thing. 
or maybe he fears there will be too much political instability if he does so. I mean, everybody's come to him and said and conspired. Or maybe he doesn't want to be seen as playing favorites, especially so early in his new administration. The decree seemed fine to him until his faithful servant Daniel was in trouble. So when Daniel finds out, knowing that the document has been signed, he went to his house where he was accustomed to kneel at the window that faced Jerusalem. And what did he do? He leaned upon his God. He praying, here, praying here towards Jerusalem isn't some kind of superstitious thing. Uh, as some might today think, and think wrongly that Christians have to sort of kneel and pray in the direction of Jerusalem. That's not what's going on here. This was in keeping with 1 Kings chapter 8 at the very dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. Solomon, among many things, said, when your people are long far away, even exiled to foreign lands, and they turn and pray towards this temple, hear them, O Lord, and forgive them and help them. And so Daniel here is just taking up that place that stood for the presence of God with his people, where God drew near to his people in Jerusalem, and he's praying in that direction. But we don't need to do that, friends. Why? Because that was an earthly Jerusalem. We pray towards a heavenly Jerusalem. For God dwells not in human temples, as Solomon in 1 Kings 8 readily acknowledges, but God dwells in heaven, and it is through Jesus we have access to God. That's the promise. And that's the promise that the temple in Jerusalem represented, which Jesus fulfills. The place where God and man meet, where heaven and earth meet. That's Jesus for all of us. You don't have to be twisted in one direction or the other. Notice also, though, his posture. He did kneel. You can pray standing up. You can pray sitting down. You can pray flat on your face or with your hands in the air. The Bible commends them all, including kneeling. Kneeling is humbling. It's, it's the posture of a servant before a king. It's not democratic. And we don't live in a democracy we live under a monarchy. God is king. Let me ask you, do we ever pray this way? If our knees are able. And if not, why not? And why not begin? Notice also the defiance of his prayer, not just the posture. He, he knew the thing was signed and he prayed. And he prayed where he always did. And it was visible to others. <laughs> this whole crowd or throng must have been waiting outside trying to catch him to do it. Why not just wait it out? It's just 30 days. How many of us could go 30 days without praying and not blink an eyelash about it? Why not? Because he knew this wasn't about prayer and it wasn't about Darius. It was about the first commandment. Who would he worship? Would he stop worshiping for 30 days because some bureaucrats had it in for him? And the answer is no. And in praying, he destroys the idol of Darius. But as my old pastor put it, he also, uh, notice he also uh, destroys the idol of security. It, 
you can imagine him saying to himself, I know what the consequences are if I pray to the true God, but I will pray to him anyway. God is more important than my security, more important than my reputation with these people. God is what matters most, and I will not make an idol of my security in this world. But notice also about his prayer, the one last final thing, that he also, he prayed like he always did. He simply wasn't doing anything new here, friends. That's how they knew where to find him. It was his custom, his practice. They say, of course, that in the foxhole there are no atheists. In times of deep distress, people often cry out to God. That may be. But Daniel wasn't waiting for a crisis. It was the pattern of his life to lean on God. That's how he lived a godly life. What about you? Well, we see Daniel's persistent prayer amidst pressure and persecution. We see one final thing. We see in verses 15 to 28, we see Daniel's preservation by the angel of the Lord. When the king could come up with no way of escape, Daniel is cast into the lion's den. The king says to him, may your God, whom you serve, deliver you. And then a stone, did you catch that? A stone is rolled over the opening. There would have been a a bottom opening for the lions to get in and be brought out. And there would have been a hole near the top by which they threw their political enemies uh, to the lions. And that stone then is laid over the mouth of the den and the king seals it with his own signet ring, perhaps, so nobody gets to Daniel when they discover he hasn't died after the first minute or hour maybe as his own protection, but also the signet rings of the Lord's and others are also on that stone to guarantee Daniel doesn't get rescued by anybody else. But notice that the, the stone is rolled, it is sealed, that nothing might be changed. And that bears an uncanny resemblance to Matthew chapter 27, 65 and following, where we read that Pilate in the days of Jesus said, put a guard of soldiers at his tomb, go and make it as secure as you can. And they went and made it secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. As my old pastor put it, just as Daniel was sealed in the lion's den, so also Christ was sealed in the tomb. And this was the way petty human rulers uh, sealed the fate of both these great servants of the Lord. And in both cases, that human sealing led to the greater glory of God when he brought Daniel up out of the pit and when he brought Christ out of the tomb. But the king here doesn't know that Daniel's going to be spared. He's deeply distraught. He can't sleep. No entertainment is brought to him. He fasts. And at the break of day, he rushes to the tomb. Daniel, has your God saved you? And Daniel says, O king, live forever. My God sent an angel and shut the lion's mouth. Why was he not harmed? He tells you why he was not harmed. Because I was found blameless before my God. And also before you, king, I have done no harm. Again, he's not claiming sinlessness. But in this case, he had not offended or done wrong, and God upheld the judgment and spared him the punishment. And so, as with Daniel's 
three friends we saw in chapter 3 when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, but they were spared. So here we see again that God doesn't always preserve his people from trouble, but he preserves his people through their troubles until their time is up. Sometimes a Joseph is rejected by family, falsely imprisoned before God raises him to be second in command of Egypt. Sometimes a Job sees all his children die and is afflicted with terrible disease himself. But the Lord blesses his latter days more than his former. And sometimes a Daniel Daniel sees the angel of the Lord shut the mouths of lions while those same lions devour his evil enemies. As Hebrew 11 says, sometimes God's people through faith conquer kingdoms and force justice, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, are made strong out of weakness, are made mighty in war, And even women receive back their dead by resurrection. That happens through faith for some of the people of God. But that same passage in Hebrews turns around immediately and says, and some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It's both, friends. And what we need to remember is that all of these people of faith, says the writer of Hebrews, whether it went well in this life or it went poorly, whether it went easy or it went hard. All of them did not receive what was promised. Not yet. Not in this world. For like Abraham, says the writer of Hebrews, they were looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer is builder and God. They were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. That is what God has prepared for all of us to enjoy together in the new heavens and new earth. So, So unlike Daniel, I wish I could promise you, your experience will be Daniel's. (laughs) Suffering leads to promotion. (laughs) But unlike Daniel, it could be that your trials and your sufferings will end in your death and your promotion will be to glory. But the Bible says it will be worth it. (laughs) How does the story conclude? (laughs) Well, for Daniel's enemies... Things did not go well. The king in his anger has them thrown to the lions where they are devoured, not only themselves, but their wives and their children. Now, do not think that this is at Daniel's command that he is seeking personal retribution against them. This is at the king's command, and it was not the law of Israel, but it was the law of the Medes and the Persians, that those who accuse others would suffer the fate of those whom they accuse, and that is what they got. And so we might say this to ourselves, instead of fearing our enemy, we ought to fear for our enemy. 
Because we have seen in the picture of the pit what will happen to all those who oppose God. But we also see not only the destruction of Daniel's enemies, we see the exaltation of Daniel's God as not only Nebuchadnezzar, but now Darius the Mede glories in and exalts in and publishes in his whole kingdom that this God is the living God, the steadfast God, the faithful God, the saving God. God gets the glory and Daniel prospers. So we see all things work together. God works all things together for good, for his own glory and for the good of his people. He always does. And you can trust him to be doing so for you who believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that not a hair falls from our head, but by the will of our Father in heaven. Thank you that, that sparrows fall to the ground by the will of our Father, and you, you don't miss a one, and we are worth far more than many sparrows to you. Thank you that you didn't spare your own son, that we might be spared everlastingly. Help us, we pray in our troubles and trials, and help us to cast all our anxieties on you who care for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.